Good morning, everyone. Um, so, very interesting uh, piece of research that I'm excited to share with you today. Uh, I am going to start with a little bit of a spoiler alert, um, so which will give you an opportunity to dash out of the room and go to another session if you want to, which is that we don't actually have our final results to share. Um, that doesn't mean that it isn't interesting, though, because I think in some ways um, it's more about the process and the way in which we've approached this. Um, and actually, I guess, in some ways, the, the research question itself, um, which is about the supply of medical specialists in South Africa. Um, so I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about that context um, and why it's such an important question um, that requires answering. Um, and how it's, a, it's a, a new application of actuarial skills to answer these, uh, these questions uh, with enormous potential for social value. Um, so this piece of work was done by... Um, oh, okay, sorry, there was an opening slide with the names. Um, it was done by a team of four of us, um, myself and Dave, as the actuarial components of the team, uh, Anya Smith, who is a health economist at Stellenbosch University, uh, and Jody Wishner, who is a public health consultant at Percept. Um, it's the sort of project that really suits itself to a multidisciplinary approach um, because it requires a really good understanding of the healthcare system, uh, a really good understanding of the training process for medical specialists and the demand for medical specialists, um, and really good modeling skills. Um, and you'll see as I go along why actuarial modeling skills and, and actually quite a sort of traditional part of our toolkit um, is actually so useful in this, in this particular context. Um, so just to give you a sense of the agenda, um, so I'm going to start with the, the, the need for healthcare for long-term um, health worker planning, um, so why this whole area of work is so important. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the current supply of medical specialists in South Africa, so, so what it is that we already know, um, and then tell you a little bit about the types of uh, workforce planning models that you get, um, and in that contextualize the work that's previously been done in South Africa and how it is that the work that we are doing is, is different. Um, and then, the, I guess in some ways, the crux of the issue, which is around the data in South Africa. So we don't have an integrated uh, source of data to do this type of work, um, which is why this project has taken us uh, many months longer than expected, because it requires the blending of data across multiple sources. Um, so that in itself has been a, a huge area for learning um, and, I think, a, a very valuable uh, process. Um, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the modeling, the, our modeling approach, uh, which is where the sort of actual bit comes into it. Uh, for, so those of you interested in that, you're going to have to wait till the, till the end. Um, and then tell you a little bit about the remaining part of the process, so, so what, what lies ahead of us. Um, so let's talk about the, the need for this type of planning, particularly in the South African context. So the best way to describe our current situation uh, is that we're flying blind. Um, so we, the, in terms of figures in the public domain as to how many medical specialists we have, of each type of specialist, where they are, um, all of those figures are completely outdated. There was a human resources for health strategy that the National Department of Health published. It was published in 2012, um, so based on data prior to that. Um, so the data itself is now eight years old. Um, but the recommendations in that strategy, which were around setting up ongoing uh, processes to do this type of work have not been implemented. So there is currently no ongoing process in South Africa to ensure, or ongoing structure, to ensure that this type of planning work takes place. 
Um, and then to make that make things worse is, as I said, there's no integrated source of data. So all of the pieces of information that you need to be able to build these models and to do this work um, actually sit all over the place. Um, and it isn't an, an easy process to, to pull all of that together. Um, so flying blind is one thing. Flying blind into a storm is a whole other, much more concerning thing. Um, and, and really, there is, I don't think there's a better way to describe um, what, what's going on in South Africa at the moment. Um, so our situation in terms of medical specialists is, is dire. Um, we have enormous maldistribution of the resources. That's both between the public sector and the private sector. So if you look at um, oncology as an example that I think most people are familiar with because it's been in the media a lot, um, we have uh, provinces in South Africa where the supply of oncologists in the public sector has collapsed completely. So there are no oncologists in the public sector. Um, but all, and all of those oncologists, it's not that we don't have oncologists at all, it's just that all of those oncologists have moved across to the private sector. So in KZN, for example, uh, we're down to one oncologist in the public sector and 52 oncologists in the private sector. Um, so we've ended up in a situation where um, those oncology services have to be purchased from the private sector, but it's done in sort of crisis mode, um, and that sort of purchasing hasn't been done in a particularly strategic way. Um, we also, even within the public sector, have huge uh, maldistribution issues regionally. So if you take uh, anaesthetists as an example, um, in, in Pumalanga, we have four anaesthetists in the public system. Um, four, like one, two, three, four. Um, which means that it doesn't matter how many hospitals you've got, it doesn't matter how many hospital theatres you've got, it doesn't matter how many surgeons you have, um, you can't actually do surgeries without anaesthetists. Um, so what we have are either those patients not getting the surgeries that they need uh, or having to uh, go to Gauteng for those surgeries and overloading of facilities in Gauteng. Um, so the maldistribution is, is very serious, uh, and it's a very serious manifestation of a lack of planning. Um, so implied in this maldistribution are these extreme shortages. And if you take something like the anaesthetist situation as an example, it's, it's not only that you have a collapse of the service in a particular province, but you also have a collapse of the training platform. So the way that, you know, uh, medical specialist training works is that there's an, a sort of a theoretical academic component at a university, but then there's also your registrarship where you're actually working within the system, and part of that is having to be taught by somebody who is already qualified. Uh, if there are no qualified specialists, uh, then you can't train future specialists. Um, and in some ways, that is, that is the most concerning thing, um, because once your training platform collapses, it's extremely difficult to re-establish it. Um, on the, in the private sector, on the other hand, um, in the, the re recent uh, health market inquiry report, um, there's a concern that there are an oversupply of certain specialities in particular regions, um, and then that re results in what's called supply-induced demand, so where you have excessive treatment because um, there has to be you know, sort of demand that is, that is generated to keep everybody busy. Um, I mean, one example of that is um, that we, in South Africa, have an extremely high caesarean section rate. Um, it's, it's one of the highest in the world. The, the World Health Organization recommendations are between 10 and 15% of births are caesarean sections, and the rest are natural. Um, in our private sector, that statistic is flipped around. Um, and it's 85% of births as opposed to being cesarean sections as opposed to, to natural. 
Um, so if you take all of these, you know, this sort of broad context, and then you overlay that with what's going on in terms of the, demog the demographic characteristics of the medical professional itself, um, there's, a, there's another layer of concern, as if there isn't enough to be worried about. Um, we also have an aging medical profession, um, which means that those projections are really important, right? So that we not only look at the situation today and think about, do we have enough specialists now? We actually need to be able to project forward and say, what about five years' time? What about ten years' time? And how many do we need to be training so that we're filling up the pipeline that we can keep up with that retirement rate? Um, for those of you who have heard me talk about um, various transformation-related issues, uh, you'll find it surprising that I have on the slide uh, that an issue for concern is the feminization of the medical profession. Um, it's not the feminization itself that is a problem. Um, where it's the second order effect in that we have differential choices of speciality uh, between men and women. Um, and of course a lot of those differential choices are sort of artifacts of, of other social conditions. Um, so women tend to choose uh, specialities that have better working conditions. Um, and uh, there are certain specialities which have historically been unfriendly to women in terms of the, the, the power dynamics and the, the way the sort of training has worked uh, in, those, in those areas. So, for example, very few uh, women anaesthetists, very few women surgeons, and lots of uh, women dermatologists. Um, so what we see in the data, we've collected data from each of the South African universities, um, and we've collected data on, on the registrars, uh, and what we see is that um, the programs, the undergraduate MBCHB programs have feminized, so there are more women doing medicine than there are men, um, so that if we don't start to think about how we, sh how we change the characteristics of the specialities to make it more even in terms of what people choose, um, but also how we sort of inform those choices that we will have a problem down the line in terms of too many of certain specialities and too few of, of others. Um, but it does require some deep thinking about what the root causes of those issues are. Um, and then the last kind of overlay on all of this stuff to be concerned about um, are the changes in the South African population itself. So uh, in projecting forward and thinking about um, what we will need down the line, uh, we also need to think about the burden of disease. So for example, if we have a rising uh, cancer rate, um, then we're going to need more oncologists in, in future. Um, so there is, this, there is this shift in our burden of disease uh, towards more uh, non-communicable non disease, um, a huge uh, prevalence of diseases like, like diabetes, um, so that starts to shape um, what you should be thinking about from a training perspective. Um, and then, of course, migration is a huge issue, both internally within South Africa, between provinces, so thinking about the distribution issues, um, and, but also migration into and out of, uh, out of South Africa. Um, so all of these things, I think, uh, hopefully combine uh, to create quite a compelling uh, proposition that this work of, that, that this is work that should be done. Um, and it actually seems crazy when you think about all of these changes and all of these moving parts um, that nobody's doing this sort of planning work. Um, and the, I mean, I think part of the issue is that it's not, the, the, the planning work is not straightforward, the modeling is not straightforward, um, because it's not easy to get a handle on all of the dynamics. There are lots of moving parts, um, and there's a lot of complexity in the, in the system. But if you do get the planning right, if you're able to do it well, and there are good examples elsewhere in the world of where this is done very effectively, it's the key to unlocking the current paralysis that we have in our healthcare system. 
Um, so uh, some of you might have noticed um, in the, the president's speech about um, economic stimulus, um, and I'm sure there'll be some more about it in the in the budget speech, um, that there's this, this talk about filling the vacancies um, you know, that, that we currently have in our healthcare system. It's deeply concerning that, to me at least, I hope it's concerning to other people, um, that we would think about filling those vacancies without having done this planning work to figure out which vacancies to fill and how to prioritize. Um, so the vacancies that we currently have on our uh, books in the country um, are mostly historical and quite sort of arbitrary. Um, a lot of those have been sitting in the system for a very long time, um, and the work hasn't been done to actually interrogate them um, and to make those prioritization decisions. If you've got a limited amount of money, where do you spend that, that money? Um, but we do have this current sort of uh, paralysis issue where nothing is being done, um, and we really quite strongly believe that planning is the key to, to un un unlocking this. Um, I think, I mean, linked to that, I think it's important to, to kind of note um, how this work arose. Um, so this particular project is funded by the Discovery Foundation. Um, the foundation funds the training of medical specialists, and what they realized was that um, they were getting in applications every year um, and making decisions about which specialists to fund based on the sort of quality of the submissions in that year. Uh, and that they also weren't stepping back and looking at it and saying, well, do we need to actually fund more dermatologists or more cardiologists? So, you know, what, one of the examples was that the cardiologists at UCT had really kind of figured out the system and were submitting really good applications every year. So every year they'd approve the funding of cardiologists at UCT. And then at some point it was like, well, hang on, you know, should we actually keep doing this or should we actually be stepping back and looking at what the country needs? Um, so it's a really good example, I think, of using private sector money uh, to fund research that has a very strong uh, public purpose. Um, but in terms of some of the things that the planning enables, it enables evidence-based interventions. Um, it, it's not always, the answer isn't always that you need more. So, you know, the, the, the title of this talk was How Much is Enough? Um, I'll show you in a few slides how big the disparities are between South Africa and other countries. The, the, it isn't that the only solution to, the, to our problem is to have enough specialists that we're on par with Australia or England or um, Finland or whatever it is. There are other things that we can do. You can do things like task shifting, where you enable lower trained staff to be able to do particular jobs. Um, there are things called vertical and horizontal substitution. So vertical substitution is the task shifting with lower cadre staff doing work. Um, vertical substitution is actually, sorry, horizontal substitution is between, between specialities that you actually change some of the mix of what the specialities do. You can do targeted training. So for example, uh, going back to the anaesthetist example, um, what's happened is that the anaesthetists have actually worked with GPs uh, to train them to do uh, the more sort of basic um, anesthetics for, for some procedures so that at least some of those procedures can happen in places like Limpopo and Mpumalanga and the Free State and not all of those patients have to move. So the person, the GP doesn't have to be fully trained as an anaesthetist, they can just be, have targeted training on particular areas. Um, another example is trauma surgery. Um, we have 36 trauma surgeons in the whole country um, and trauma is one of our, we, we, South Africa is described as having a quadruple burden of disease. Trauma is one of the big four uh, areas of our burden of disease. Um, we have so few that they actually have one WhatsApp group where they 
connect with each other. Like that's when, when everybody can, they all know each other by name and they're all in the same WhatsApp group. That's without doing any stats or mathematical modeling, you know that you don't have enough. Um, but they've been doing lots of outreach work and, and training lower cadre staff in some of the trauma techniques. Um, and supporting supporting that. And there's also there's really cool stuff happening um, using technology. Uh, there's an app called Vula, which is used in the in the public sector, um, which is a referral uh, app. So um, it allows uh, the sharing of videos and text and uh, pictures. Um, it allows um, a doctor who's in an outlying area who needs access to an ophthalmologist, for example, uh, to connect with an ophthalmologist digitally, um, and it results in some training, but also. Uh, advice from, from higher cadre staff. Um, so there's lots that can be done. Uh, one of the most exciting things actually um, is that um, the establishment of the NHI fund enables the purchasing of services from the private sector. So we don't necessarily have to try and move specialists out of the private sector into the public sector, which we know is, wouldn't be an easy thing to do. You can actually purchase services from uh, pr private providers. It's just about figuring out what services you want to purchase and at, at what sort of price. So there's a lot, that's the positive side of the story, is that if we do this work, um, there's a lot that we can do, do with it. Um, okay, so how many medical specialists are there? I mean, this is, this, is, this is a ridiculous situation where I can't quickly tell you what the answer to that question is. There isn't a single data source in South Africa that is accurate and up-to-date um, that you can just quickly go and see in 2018 how many medical specialists do we have in South Africa. Um, we can very quickly tell you how many actuaries there are, right? You just go to ASSO and you say, how many actuaries are there? And they tell you. Um, but we can't do the same for, for medical specialists. So the South African Health Review, um, their 2015 number was 15,000 medical specialists. Um, we have a data set from the Health Professions Council of South Africa where doctors have to register, which we've cleaned up. This is just the first layer of cleaning just with age filters. Uh, that's 2018 data, which indicates uh, just under 13,000 medical specialists. Um, Econics uh, did a piece of work which they published in 2012 where they estimated that there were 10,500 medical specialists. So there's a 50% difference between the Econics estimate and the South African Health Review estimate. Um, and then, of course, as soon as you start to break that down into specialties and subspecialties, those inaccurate, inaccuracies and variations get, get even worse. Um, we think the Econics number is actually too low um, because they, we don't think that they counted all of the subspecialties. Um, but the South African Health Review number is too high because those data sets haven't been cleaned out sufficiently to allow for people who aren't in clinical practice, so they're still registered um, as doctors, but they're not actually practicing medicine um, and not sufficiently cleaned up to allow for, for immigration. Um, so the truth is, is somewhere in between there. Um, just to quickly give you a sense, this is from the HBCSA data of um, the, the, the difference between men and women. Um, so what you'll see in the young years is that there are more women than men. Um, so partly that's a result of that feminization of the, of the undergraduate program that I was talking about. Um, but you'll see at the older ages um, that there are almost no, no women specialists at, at all. Um, and part of what we have to figure out in doing this modeling work and projecting forward um, is whether um, there would still be some drop off of women in, uh, you know, later on who, uh, who don't continue to, to stay in clinical practice. Um, more than the absolute numbers, I think what's really interesting is to consider the supply of specialists relative to the population. Um, so if we look at the OECD average, there are 274 uh, medical specialists per 100,000 people. Um, 
Chile is the closest of the OECD countries, the closest um, in economic characteristics to South Africa, um, and they have 110, um, and we have 22. Um, so, not enough, I think, is my uh, opinion, technical opinion. <laughs> um, no, so we clearly don't have enough. Um, so the questions really are about how we prioritize within that um, and, and what other solutions there can be to, to try and address the health needs of the South African population. Um, this picture, I think, actually looks worse if, because this is just per 100,000 people. It's not adjusted, actually, for the burden of disease. And South Africa has a very high burden of disease. So actually, if you're adjusted for that, um, our need is actually higher. Um, so that I think it's actually accentuated from, from that picture. But it's not a pretty picture. Um, okay, so just to tell you a little bit about the types of modeling. Um, so the previous types of uh, models that have been built in South Africa to do, to do this work, there was a, the Colleges of Medicine uh, of South Africa. Um, so the colleges is, is where people write their, um, their specialist exams. They fellowship, they're, they're called the fellowship exams, like our fellowship exams. Um, so you register at a university, you do an MMed, and then you also uh, do your fellowship through the colleges. Um, so they commissioned a study uh, 2008-2009, um, and then there was the Iconics work that I referred to in 2009 and, and 2010, uh, which they updated a little bit in 2012, um, and then there was the National Human Resources for Health Strategy document um, in 2011. Um, all three of those pieces of work uh, can be categorized as what are called supply-side models. So those are models that just look at the number of specialists in each of the different specialties, um, and, and I mean, it's essentially just a, a count of what we have. Um, and then maybe some projection uh, to say, like, you know, based on the training uh, pipeline and retirement and death and those sorts of things, what might that look like down, down the line, five years' time or ten years' time. Um, when you look internationally, what you see is that um, there are three other categories of, of models, all of which actually are concerned with the gap between supply and demand. Um, so not just looking at the supply of doctors, but actually looking at what is the demand for, for the different specialities. Um, so the, the first, the kind of simplest one of those looks at supply and demand in terms of how demand actually manifests in the healthcare system, so the actual hospital admissions and utilization. Um, the second starts to think about unmet need. So, you know, might you actually need more than what you appear to need from the current utilization in the system. Um, and then the third type, which is much less common, uh, actually looks at setting particular service targets, um, which we, we don't have in South Africa. So we've gone with the, the second of those estimated gap models, um, which considers uh, unmet need, uh, or tries to consider unmet need at least. Um, the reason that that's important is because if you take, for example, the oncology examples and the anaesthetist examples, because we have such a dire shortage, we're not supplying those services at all, um, there is no apparent demand. So there are no people getting oncology services in KwaZulu-Natal because there are no oncologists. Um, it doesn't tell you anything about the number that we actually actually need. Okay, so this is, this is really the crux of um, why this project has taken so long. Um, these are the data sources that, that we are working with. Um, the data, uh, the sort of central data set comes from the Health Professions Council of South Africa, uh, where you need to register in order to, uh, to practice clinically. Um, we've had lots of difficulty uh, with the HPCSA in terms of access to the data. 
Um, so they haven't been very willing to, to share it. Um, they do have some data that they have in the public domain because you, as a patient, uh, can actually look up on the Health Professions Council. You can look up your doctor uh, and see whether they are registered or not. Um, and when you look them up, there's quite a lot of data there. Um, you'll be able to see their name, their surname, their practice number, uh, sorry, not their practice number, what's called their MP number, their registration number. Um, you'll be able to see where they studied, um, when they graduated, when they registered to practice, um, what sector they work in, public or private, uh, and what province they're located in. Um, so we've blended data that we've got from the HPCSA uh, with data that we were able to scrape uh, off the web. Uh, Dave built a, a little bot that, that did that. Um, so we've, we've uh, linked those two bits of data together. Um, the data is flawed in the sense that it is overstated, as I mentioned, because of non-clinical work, uh, immigration, and, and death. They have improved the data. So previously, even if you didn't pay your, so if you died, and then clearly didn't pay your registration fees, they still kept your registration open. Um, they did do, and they were heavily criticized for that because it resulted in this overstating. Um, so they have subsequently done a cleanup of their, of their data set, but it's still not, not perfectly clean. Um, and things like their sector data and to some extent their province data, um, just based on the analysis that we've done, uh, appears to be completely wrong and not, not usable. Um, so th that, that HPCSA data set covers everybody who works in both the public sector and the private sector. Um, to get a better understanding of the people who work in the public sector, we've managed to convince uh, government to share with us data on their employees, um, and that data has the age, sex, province, and pay grade of every medical specialist in the public sector, but it doesn't have the speciality. So I can't actually see whether you're a pediatrician or a rheumatologist or whatever it is. Um, on the private sector side, um, there's data from the Board of Healthcare Funders. So to actually be able to bill a medical scheme, you need to not only be registered with the HBCSA, but you also have, you have to have what's called a practice number, um, which enables that, that billing. Um, and that, that is quite a rich data source. Um, so the, the, they have age, sex, speciality. And then they also have what's called an ROPS indicator. Uh, ROPS is a, it's the acronym for the permission that public sector doctors have to have to be able to also do private sector work. Um, so the, the Board of Healthcare Funders knows uh, who those doctors are who actually sit across both sectors. Um, and then we've been very fortunate um, I think partly because the project is Discovery uh, Foundation funded, uh, to have claims data from Discovery, uh, which enables us to discern the level of activity. Um, because one of the key things in the model is to try and understand who's, what resources we actually have. So you need to have some sense of who's full-time uh, and who's part-time. Um, so these very disparate sources of data with different variables, different levels of data cleanliness, um, and lots of negotiation with each of them to try and actually access the data. Um, we've also needed uh, ethics clearance because of the nature of the work, uh, which is a long protracted process in and of itself. So we have ethics clearance from, from Wits University. Um, we've put in place, because of the privacy issues, uh, we've had to put in place a protocol to enable the linking of the data. Um, and what we've gone for is what's called the, th the trusted third party method. Um, so they actually do the linking and the de-identification and we don't actually re receive any of the identifiable data at the end. Um, so we're working very closely with the Western Cape uh, Data Health, the Health Data Center, which is a, it's an amazing uh, organization. Um, and it's the first time that they've 
uh, they've done this type of work uh, and they're keen to sort of establish themselves as, as able to do it. So it's also been a good learning process for them. Um, and then they, they will do the actual matching, um, which includes having to do some fuzzy matching on things like name and surname, uh, which, is, which is great fun. Um, so this is the part of the process where we're at at the moment. Um, so we've, we've signed NDAs with all of the data providers. We have the sort of buy-in to get the data. Um, and we have the MOU in place with the, the Western Cape Data Center. Um, so once the data gets transferred across and linked and all of that, we should be ready to rock and roll fairly soon. I feel like I've been saying that for months. But, um, okay, so then to give you a sense of the modeling. So we've actually built the model. It's, um, when I say we, I mean, Dave has built the model. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's actually, so once the data is ready, um, we, it will be able to get results really quickly. Um, it's, and this is the, the, this is really where the actuarial bit comes in because it's effectively population modeling. Um, so I'm just going to give you an example, uh, of a particular data cell, uh, and how the, you know, what we did around each data cell. Um, and then you can just imagine that that was replicated for every, Six, every speciality, every age, um, and part-time and full-time and public sector and private sector. So lots of different dimensions. Um, so the example here is a full-time female public sector oncologist age 37 in 2020. Um, so it's just, it really is just one, one cell. Um, and where that feeds from is full-time female public sector oncologists age 36 in 2019. Um, so we're moving those across by a year, um, but it's it's there's a it's a multiple decrement model. Um, so what we're interested in is the survival rate, net of death, retirement, and immigration. Um, we then also have a transition from part-time um, specialists in that category, so who transition from part-time to full-time. Uh, the Board of Healthcare Funders data is quite helpful to be able to do some of that estimation. Um, and then we have. Um, private sector specialists in that category uh, transitioning from private to public. Um, that does, and just, uh, I mean, this is, a, this, is an, this is just to show you that we do the same, I mean, it's the same process for every cell, uh, but of course in some of them the transition rates are zero, um, so this doesn't really happen where people go back from private to, to public. Um, and then we also have feeding in from the, we've, we've built a, a, a training pipeline piece of the model, um, so we've looked at the different universities and their training programs. Um, so what we would have here is a third-year female oncologist registrar, age 35 in 2018, who then moves across to being a final-year registrar, age 36 in 2019, um, and then moves across to actually being an oncologist. So there's a registrar component of the model and a specialist uh, component. The reason you need to do both is because their available work capacity is, is different. Um, and then there's also in-migrating oncologists um, in that same in that same category. Um, yeah, so that's just just to give you a sense of that. Uh, we originally built the model in Excel um, because, from a client perspective, um, we thought it would be better from a usability point of view. Uh, but then, when we realised just how many specialties and subspecialties there are, um, we realised that that wasn't going to work. Um, so it's now in in Python uh, and runs. Uh, many multiples faster than, than an Excel. Um, okay, so just to summarize our approach, um, it really is built on a foundation of international best practice. We spent a lot of time looking at what's done elsewhere in the world. Um, Australia and England and the Netherlands are by a long way 
uh, the best examples of, of how this is done. Um, in terms of the structures that they have in place, um, the way that they pull different stakeholders, they, they have these multi-stakeholder structures, um, the way that they collect data, um, the kind of processes that they run, but also the, the kind of modeling work that they do. Um, so in all of these health systems, these are really well-established uh, entities that do this work. Um, England's actually interesting because it, they, they've now tried to move it back inside uh, the, the NHS, um, so it's, it's not clear whether they're going to actually maintain, because it was a separate entity before, it's not clear whether they're going to be able to maintain uh, the quality of the process that they have had. Um, so that's, we really have built it on that foundation. Um, and then the second piece of it is this issue of collating data. Um, so I think the process that we've been through in terms of figuring out who has what data um, and how to collate it is a very useful one uh, and is hopefully something that can be replicated. Um, they, the new Medical Schemes Amendment Bill uh, does a, create a provision for the Council for Medical Schemes to collect this sort of data. Um, there's a lot of concern about whether that's the appropriate way to do it and whether they're the right entity to do that. Um, but it does indicate at least that, that there is, from a policy perspective, the thinking is there that we do need to have this sort of data sitting in, in one place. Um, and then we've really uh, overlaid that with modeling that it's the first time this kind of modeling work has been done in South Africa that accounts both for the supply side and for the, the need for services and that looks at both the public sector and the private sector. We don't think, in, in, you know, given the policy changes and the move towards NHI, it doesn't make sense to model these separately. If we're going to have a unified health system, then we need to have uni unified HRH planning. Um, and that projects into the future uh, and allows, very importantly, for, for changes in productivity uh, going forward. I haven't talked about that aspect of it at all. It's a fascinating aspect with technological change, um, things like pathology and radiology. Um, the advances in, in AI uh, mean that there are big chunks of work that you will no longer need uh, specialists to do. Um, so that, cha that changes the, the need and the productivity going, going forward. Um, so, onward we go. Um, so, yeah, as I said, we've, we've done a lot of work. While we've been waiting for data, we've done a lot of model optimization work, um, and the model really is ready to, to press a button and, and run. Um, we're in the final data receipt and, and kind of processing stage, which is really exciting. Um, what we've also been doing while we've been waiting uh, for the data is uh, writing the work up from an academic perspective. So we've got a, we've got a paper coming out in the South African Health Review um, because we think it's really important to document the, the international best practice and the challenges with data and the reasons why this is important. Uh, we really hope that by doing that and putting the work out there um, that we can help to build you know, an understanding that this is an essential part of a, of a well-functioning health system. Um, and then linked to that is very strong political uh, and, poli and policy it's, it's both policy and political, those are different things, and they're both equally important uh, recommendations um, and doing work to, to get that buy-in. So I think we've managed to convince National Treasury um, that this is an important, uh, important thing that should be done. Um, it's also crazy to just be doing it for medical specialists um, because that med you can't model, I mean, if essentially we're just modeling one piece of the supply side, uh, and it doesn't work like that, they're all connected. So ideally this should be for GPs and nurses, um, and uh, community health workers, there should be one way in which you do all of that work. Um, so, of course, we, we are trying to convince um, everyone that that should be done, and, you know, hopefully they'll pay us to, to do that. Um, but, yeah, that's where we are, and, yeah, look forward to your, to your questions.
Okay, I'm opening up the floor to the question to questions. Um, over there, please. Who's got the mics? You could do that for now, I guess, but the mics are coming. <laughs> the topic makes me think uh, about perhaps pulling it through to health technology assessment. You referred to the example of um, in the gynae space, we're doing too much um, cesarean sections, and that is sort of a perverse, let's say ironic way to try and manage the shortage in our, um, in our resources because it is something you can schedule and you know it's going to take a, a certain amount of time. Um, so in the, in the pulling it to the health technology assessment side, maybe as South Africa, we may want to think of allowing maybe more expensive health technology that actually creates efficiency in the uh, constrained resource environment. In other words, we know we don't have enough truck drivers, so it might be worth buying bigger trucks, even though those trucks are not necessarily looking at them in isolation more efficient. Uh, thanks, thanks, Carl. Um, I agree. Um, I mean, I think the radiology and pathology examples are particularly pertinent. Um, so, for example, with radiology, um, some investment in cloud solutions um, so that you know images are uploaded centrally um, would reduce the number of radiologists that we need in the public sector quite dramatically because you could have a central you know um, set up somewhere where the analysis is being done, and not all of that analysis need, would even need to be done in South Africa. Um, so yeah, I agree. Um, it would be very useful to tie it back to assessing whether whether invest, certain big inv capital investments would make sense. Um, Shivani, this side. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, I want to get a sense in terms of this work, uh, the distribution of time that you spent doing various activities. I want to get a sense of that. And then the second question to that is how much of the training uh, that you have acquired as an actuary uh, or experience um, did you rely on uh, when, when, when you were using this? In other words, were you prepared to do this? Uh, obviously you were, but uh, I want to get a sense of which of the skills that you have you had to use, um, uh, depend on the knowledge that you already had in, in terms of this, and, and where the difficulties were. Uh, is it more the mathematical modeling that is difficult, or is it more understanding the context uh, that, that, that is difficult? And also in terms of importance, um, is it more the mathematical modeling that is important, um, or is it more understanding the context uh, that is more important? Thank you. So, I mean, I don't, it's difficult for me to understand how, to, to offhand know how we split our time. Um, we did invest a fair amount in understanding what's done internationally at the beginning, so there was kind of a, a research literature review type component of it. Um, we spent far more time um, in negotiations for data 
than I thought we would. Um, given the sort of public interest, I didn't expect, maybe naively didn't expect as much resistance from the Health Professions Council as we, as we got. Um, so yeah, that's just been a much more protracted process than, than I imagined and, and required much more investment. Um, I think most of which has been worthwhile though. So investing in things like ethics clearance and the third party protocol, um, I think will pay off in future. Um, there are big investments for this project, but, but will have long-term benefit. Um, and then, I mean, the, the technical component, I, th I think where the actual piece really strongly comes into play is that given our training, that, that intuition around how to approach population models and think, modeling and thinking about transitions and thinking about decrements. Uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, interesting when you work in a multidisciplinary team uh, to realize how much of that we just take for granted because it's such an essential part of our toolkit. Um, so I think that accelerated the process. And that, and that language doesn't get used in the international literature um, because it's typically not actuaries who do this work elsewhere in the world. Um, so I think it was very useful for us to see, okay, this is what's done internationally, but actually we can overlay our skill set on this um, and quite quickly get to a mathematical approach um, that, that works efficiently. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where the actual piece comes into it. Um, but the contextual stuff is huge, and there's a, a big piece, and, and this is again where the multidisciplinary stuff is so important. Um, it would be a huge mistake to think that you can do all of this with just mathematical skills or actuarial skills. Um, I mean, the, the sort of clinical understanding for each of the, I mean, part of what makes this stuff difficult is that the dynamics for each specialty are different. Um, so the things that drive the need for pediatricians are different to the things that drive the need for rheumatologists, that drive the need for trauma surgeons. I mean, some of these things, we didn't even know like what they were, you know? Um, and it took us a while to figure out um, the, the whole kind of subspecialty thing. Um, I didn't know that you could... Um, a subspecialty is actually what I would think of as a super specialty, right? So it's like you specialize and then you do another exam and then you, you're a super, I would think you're a super specialist, but no, you're actually a subspecialist. Um, but actually that you can become a, a particular type of subspecialist through multiple pathways. So you could be, you know, an anaesth so a cardiologist who does an extra course on pediatric stuff and becomes a pediatric oncologist. Or you could be a pediatrician who doesn't extra cardiology course and becomes a pediatric cardiologist. So there's multiple pathways to, to get there. Um, so the clinical understanding, uh, the understanding of the technologies that are driving um, the particular disciplines, the understanding of um, things like the task shifting. Um, so we've had, I mean, we've spent an enormous amount of time in conversations with the different specialty groups. Um, so we've talked to the anaesthetists a lot, for example, to understand how they're training GPs to be able to replace them in, in uh, certain skill sets, um, because those are, the, those are the nuances that help you to figure out, you know, you can just do the pure mathematical modeling, uh, but then you can't overlay the narratives on top of that or the, the interventions that are possible on top of that to actually be able to figure out the solution that's workable down the line. Can I uh, <clears throat> just add to that, so I think... There's really three components to the modeling. So the, the actual design of the model, that's something where the actuarial toolkit was, was fantastic, right? Our actuarial training sets us up really well to do this kind of work. Shivani, I think, has spoken quite eloquently on the learning curve that was necessary, even for somebody with a very strong healthcare background, to have the necessary context to bring that to bear on 
things like the transition probabilities in the model. The other thing where I think the actuarial training, certainly my actuarial training, so I'm speaking as uh, you know a couple of generations ago, um, but it's one thing designing a model, that's 10% of the work. The other 90% is optimizing that thing so that it, it runs quickly and efficiently. You know, So if you make a change, it's not a, another five-hour delay before you, you, you see your results. Um, and that is uh, an element of the toolkit that's certainly outside of my actuarial training and something that I've had to, had to develop subsequently. Thanks, Giovanni. Can you hear me? Thanks so much. It's very important work you're doing. And I have, I guess, two, a comment and two questions. Um, and I guess the first comment is mindful of the high level of rhetoric in this area at, at the moment. And that I guess we need to be thinking quite carefully in terms of how this work is presented, um, in terms of the potential for it to be misused and for it to become a football in this kind of debate of people trying to justify their sort of entrenched positions as opposed to what the intention here, which is to actually try and find a way to, to move this, this forward. So, I mean, I guess that's what I'd encourage everyone here to be thinking about, how we can best communicate these results in a way that they're going to be used for what the intention is, as opposed to, you know, that people will pick up the sound bites and try and use it to justify their entrenched um, positions. Which I guess brings me to one of my questions, which is around on the demand side of this, we have to think about the population, as you said, and the burden of disease and, and the population needs. And um, one of the things I'm concerned about in terms of, again, all this rhetoric, is the suggestion that we have this very segmented population of people who use the public sector and people who use the private sector, when the reality is a lot of fuzziness um, in between. I mean, perhaps not at the specialist space, perhaps more in the out-of-hospital space, but definitely there's a lot of overlap and we don't just have 8.8 .8 million medical scheme members who are using the private sector and everybody else is using, using the public sector. So from the demand side of it, how are you taking that um, um, into account? And then my second question, which I think you've kind of answered, is it certainly occurs to me that you're laying the groundwork here for a more comprehensive um, model of, of healthcare specialists and healthcare resources, which is really important in the context of, of us thinking of how we can do better with the resources we've got, rather than just throwing our hands up and saying we don't have enough. Um, so, so is the model that you're constructing ready to, um, to be adapted to those other areas, and particularly to the, the task shifting and task sharing kind of um, approach that we could actually use the model to demonstrate the feasibility? Thanks. Thank you, Roseanne. Yeah, I mean, I just I couldn't ex have expressed all of that better. Um, I think the yeah the policy use of this is is so important, um, but the the risk of it being used in the wrong way is is material. Um, and that I mean that's both at the sort of broad policy level um, in terms of I mean I guess partly some of this discussion around um, the budget, um, but also. There's a micro version of that with the specialties themselves. So very hard for us when we go and have those conversations um, because every specialty thinks that they're the most important specialty and that we need lots more of them. Um, but the reality is that we're gonna, we have to make trade-offs and choices, but we need the clinical input, right? So we can't sort of, so, you know, it's how do you build it? So, 
so that the, 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 you can play around with it and you can look at different scenarios, um, but somebody somewhere who's not an actuary and who's not a clinician um, it has to be tasked with making those trade-offs. And that's really where I think as a country we need some sort of multi-stakeholder body um, that actually has to make some of those calls and decisions. Um, I've now lost my thought about your last, what was your last question? Oh, the population. So what we've done is we've actually, um, so we've, we've um, started with the data that splits between public and private, um, but we actually pull it together to an integrated view of the country as a whole. Um, and it's one of the things that you can play around with in the model is actually the split between between those on the on the supply side. But we've treated the population as as a single population. Um, because it's really with the view that we're moving towards a unified health system. Um, and, you know, there might be some of those private resources that still, uh, you know, provide services outside of the NHI package. Um, but we do need to start thinking about, you know, how do we actually cater for the needs of the population as a, as a whole. Um, Sarah, we've got a question from Sarah over there. Can we get a mic to her? Oh. Oh, first day, sorry. Wow. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Um, so my question, or more a remark, is about the feminization in the healthcare space, in the public healthcare space. I recently spoke to someone I went to high school with, and she became a doctor, and she worked in the public sector, but the challenges she faced seemed a lot worse than other industries. So, for example, people who were dying in front of her were refusing that she would treat them because she is a female. Um, and she said this happened more and more often. Um, so I think it's not about choosing, I know this is anecdotal, it's not about them choosing better working conditions only, it's also the stigma of the public that females cannot be good doctors and they're going to end up killing them. Um, another thing was the physical constraint. She was worth, working in orthopedics. She didn't have the physical strength to use the, the equipment and uh, lift up people, etc. Um, so yeah, I think that feminization thing is a lot more complicated, and and it's um, yeah. So how, how would you how do you think that's going to be solved? Uh, and how does your model cater for? the trends that we're going to be seeing in, in that? I mean, it's, it's impossible for the model to fully cater for, for all of that. And I mean, but it's exactly that, it's exactly that complexity and nuance, right? Which is, and I mean, one of the things we realized um, when we looked at the, at, at the Australian literature, so it's a big component of their modeling. They put a lot of emphasis on it because they've had similar, well, you know, similar challenges around the distribution, the, the splits between the different specialities and, and all of those, and, and also the split between full-time and part-time work. So the dynamics between the sexes for, you know, all of the social reasons um, are very different. Um, so if you don't do the modeling, it shouldn't really be the modeling by sex, right? It should be the modeling by, I guess, life choices around part-time and full-time. But if you don't do it, you actually miss this huge dynamic that's going on. So, so, the, so we knew that it, had to, it was an important part of the model and it had to be there and it wasn't something that we could ignore. Um, but in terms of fixing it, um, I mean, I think what the model can do is help to elevate the 
what's going on and the statistics around there and be able to show, you know, you can see in the graph there's that, like, you know, you've got more women than men and then there's this, like, a radical drop-off. Um, so we have to start interrogating what drives that drop-off. Um, so what drives the choices between specialties? And like you say, it might just be physical constraints. But those, those physical constraints, there must be solutions to, right? Whether that's that you then combine female orthopedic surgeons with male nurse, orthopedic nurses or whatever, it, or you redesign the equipment or what, you know, there must be solutions to, to that. Um, but you've got to then go specialty by specialty and actually interrogate what those, what those problems are. Um, but I mean, it, I mean, we, you know, in the conversations we try to have with like the surgeons and the anesthetists where they've got massive problems with not having enough women um, it's because it's so entrenched it's very difficult for the, they're just like oh women aren't suited to being surgeons like, really you know um, so there's a lot of work I think that the medical profession needs to do um, and all we really can do from a modeling perspective is is kind of highlight those issues and questions and also that if we don't because the MBCHB is feminized if we don't solve those later problems we aren't going to have enough people who've studied actually working um, we're going to have more and more people who choose to drop out of clinical practice. Um, so it's, it's, it's absolutely critical that we solve those problems. Um, yeah, just to add on to that, she actually did uh, leave uh, dealing with patients directly and was got, went to the background to deal with research and clinical trials just because it was just yeah better working environment just because and better culture, yeah. Yeah. Hello. Is it on? Yeah. It's on, Brian. Hi, thanks guys for the presentation. Um, I probably have quite a few questions, but I'll, I'll try and limit it. Um, I think, it, yeah, it's, it's good that you guys have mentioned the, pub, the private public churn. It seems like it's a fuzzy area of how much some specialists spend in both private and public. You know, maybe some do one day a week or whatever, so I think that's a nuance that I'm glad you guys are trying to get around. Um, I also, probably on a more political level, was thinking about the HPCSA um, and their approach to getting medical practitioners from outside of the country. So from my recollection, definitely in South Africa there's a restriction on, uh, at the undergrad level, accepting foreign students into the medical uh, uh, studies. Um, what's their approach when it comes to medical specialists? Uh, I know that there are quite a few medical specialists uh, getting training here. What's their approach once that training is done? Can they then work here? Can they register here? Um, is that somewhere where they can get a better supply <coughs> Sorry, to support um, the numbers? And then also is is the is the training system are they actually enough uh, registrar positions to to enhance the output? Because I know with the Cuban trained doctors, they've been saying once they come back from Cuba, actually there's no space within the medical schools for them. That's all for now. Um, so. 
it is possible as a foreign doctor to register as a specialist in South Africa. So we see a fair number of, of foreign doctors in the, in the data. Um, my understanding is that it's not a smooth or easy process. Um, and that it's also not a very consistent process. So some people manage to register relatively easy and other people get stuck in the process for, for years. Um, but there is, I mean, there is a, I mean, we see it in the data, so we can see that there are, there are foreign doctors. Um, the Cuban doctors issue, my understanding is that it has to do with the differences in how the training is structured. Um, so they actually come in trained quite differently to say a South African GP. Um, so the, there's a question of, of slotting into our MED program, so how that works given that the training is different. Um, but then there's a general issue around training positions. Um, so it relates, it relates to this issue of, you know, because of the shortages, um, so it's, a, it's kind of a double whammy, right? Because we have such a shortage, you need as many doctors like in the public sector practicing as possible. Um, so it, it, your training capacity is tightened. And then in some areas, there aren't actually enough doctors for there to be enough. You know, so you've got to have a ratio of qualified doctors to registrars. Um, and there aren't enough for that to be at the right sort of level. Um, so that's definitely, the, you know, the... We've, we've got a sort of a long-term structural problem there that we need to figure out how to how to fix. Um, so what, one of the issue topics that's been up for discussion, uh, or maybe up for discussion is not the right way, that the private sector has wanted to have for a long time and haven't been able to sort of get a hearing on um, is the issue of private, se you know, using private hospitals and private doctors uh, to do some of the training. Um, so, you know, I mean, it just seems clear when you look at the numbers that we're going to struggle to unlock the problem um, unless we start to think about private, uh, private training. I think one of the um, one of the other things that conversations that we hope the modeling work will force is a recognition of that perhaps there is a need for more of that in migration than is being allowed currently. So it's very hard to see that on one side of the model is driven by that 2012 work that Shivani referred to, which actually you know quantifies a recommended number of target number of specialists uh, for each discipline per hundred thousand of the population. There's just no way with the current supply and the pipeline that's coming through the MMED programs um, that that entire demand is going to come close to being met. Um, so you, know, you can solve that in the long term by expanding the size of your MBCHBs and then your MMED programs, um, but first of all you need enough uh, specialists inside the public sector to handle, handle the training, right? Um, quite apart from the fact that you've still got this short-term hole. Um, and I, I think that those um, there's sort of a lip service paid to the fact that we have a problem there, but what we're really hoping the model will show is that this is, this is a policy decision that needs to be grappled with quite actively. Um, so, I don't know. Um, I, I'm an actuary that works in life insurance more than healthcare, and I guess I'm always fascinated about um, how as a life insurance industry, we actually pay multi-billion rands in claims annually um, for things that are we very much um, affected by what happens in, in healthcare. So I, I guess it's, it's maybe a comment slash a question. Is, do you think maybe this work can help to bridge this gap that between the actuarial society and the medical professions? That, because we are actually, our interests are so aligned 
Um, and how do we maybe, you know, I think bridge that gap, given that we actually, um, insurance funds a lot of um, medical treatments, but we also have an interest in, in if people are, for example, um, not living longer or they are dying sooner prematurely. Thank you. Um, so this is a this is a bit of a bugbear of of mine. Um, I'm always surprised by how little life insurance companies engage with the healthcare system because it's, I, I, I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. Like I think they're intrinsically linked. Um, but I think our training somehow doesn't teach us to think that much about the underlying markets. So you know, in terms of our sort of actual toolkit um, that we solve problems through reserving and pricing and product design um, and that we don't think that much about kind of all of the factors that are like societal and market factors that underpin that. Whereas it feels like in healthcare you can't avoid thinking about those, you know. I think you would do a terrible job of selling uh, medical scheme products or health insurance products if you didn't think about how doctors behave and patients and burden of disease and all of those sorts of things. Um, so perhaps it's almost like a deeper issue of like how do we bring that way of thinking across the practice areas, you know, that um, actually that's, I mean, we've been surprised in, um, I mean, we're a consultancy, right, so, and very engaged with things like NHI, been surprised in how not interested life insurance companies are in having conversations about NHI and what the consequences for the country are, because maybe, and I wonder if I'm so embedded in my sort of view that it seems obvious to me that that's something that we need to be thinking about, because it will have implications, you know, for, like you say, how long people live and uh, what disabilities people live with and, you know, all of those, those sorts of things. Yeah, so I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. uh, hi. Um, thank you, Sivani and Dave, for an informative talk. Um, the question that I had was around qualitative data collection. And have you uh, or are you planning a formal qualitative data collection process, for example, speaking to the public sector specialists working out in the field. Um, for example, I have a cousin who is an infectious disease specialist who's um, working in the Eastern Cape, and he's split between Frey Hospital and one of the other hospitals. And I think he would have some really useful insights about capacity and how many infectious specialists they really need in that area, and also innovative and alternative solutions that could be implemented based on his experience. And I think um, Tiffany gave another good example of, of a, per, a personal story. So I think, uh, so will there be an opportunity for the specialists to tell their stories and share their insights and experiences? I wish we had more sort of like time and resources for, for, the, for more of that. So we have, we've talked to the specialist organizations, which, and the big ones, you know, which gives you some sense of that. Um, and then we've also worked with the team at Discovery that works with, so they've got a team um, looking at young doctors in particular um, and looking at, um, you know, obviously for the sustainability of the health system going forward, um, that um, we need to have a sustainable pool of young doctors who are committed to staying in South Africa. Um, and so they have a team that work with understanding what challenges young doctors face. Um, so it's everything from um, actually, one of the, the, I think one of the top issues um, is accommodation at hospitals um, and how, I mean, I couldn't believe it when they showed me the photographs of the staff accommodation at some of the hospitals. Um, and, you know, so it's like practical things like that which limit 
the supplier of doctors, you know, because once you've been traumatized, I mean, you're doing traumatic work and you're staying in awful conditions, um, it's the kind of thing that, you know, so why would you stay in South Africa? Why wouldn't you just go and work in Canada or something like that? So, you know, trying to tackle those root cause issues. So they do lots of qualitative work. They've built a community, um, there's a conference, um, so there's at least a, that's a space in which some of those voices are, are emerging. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is, it, it's important work to sort of, you know, so whatever process is set up for this kind of work to continue going forward, there should definitely be a qualitative aspect uh, to it as well. I, yeah, agree. Um, there's also, I wanted to say, just sorry, in, um, I think it's in Australia, that one of the data sources that they use is actually a survey um, that they send out every year. Um, and it helps them to estimate some of the parameters like full-time and part-time work and the transitions between those. Um, because actually all the other data sources don't give you a good enough sense of it. Um, so yeah, that would be, if that's something that you know, we could fund in some way, I think would be a very useful data source. Shall I take one question or should we close it? This session. Okay. Uh, thanks, Dave and Shivani. It was a very informative talk. I know I've heard it before at UCT, but uh, I found that the second round just brought a little bit more different perspective for me. Um, thank you again, and I can't wait to see the final results. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>